Amen. So glad you're with us this morning. Like I said, my name's Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we are going to be back in 1 John in chapter 2, which we'll be in for at least another week. Chapter 2 of 1 John, you got to find, you know, used to everybody had paper Bibles, and it was kind of hard to find some of those little letters in the New Testament, but now you just go to the next, you know, thing, your next link um, in your app, and that's great. You know, I, I think I'm supposed to be against, like, digital Bibles, but like, I know where my paper Bible is because it's important for me to, like, know the answer to that. But it's like a trivia question at this point. I'm all digital. So don't feel bad if you're going to tap your way to 1 John 2. But if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in a modern, readable English translation, we'd love to give you that on your way out as we continue to think about assurance. Think for a moment about that word, assurance. Think about how wonderful it would be to really feel peace. I'm not trying to be too dramatic, but that's kind of how you think of peace. Like you think of something that's kind of quiet, something that feels kind of calm. The idea of assurance, as John's going to talk about it throughout this book, is something that gives you peace in the midst of really weird, difficult, trying, painful uh, life. We just did a whole series on anxiety because everybody is just eaten up with it. What would it be if we could really experience peace? It's something that's worth figuring out and it's something worth fighting for. As John continues to talk, he's going to talk today about community. And for for my little family, we've had a pretty interesting week. Uh, My wife had to go back to uh, Tennessee where her family is for a, a difficult kind of medical situation. And so she's gone for kind of a longer period of time. And because we're part of the community of Hope Church, we got to watch the community react. And, you know, I, I praise God for the double standard because, you know, my wife has gone for just a minute, you know, a, couple, a week and a little bit. And everybody's just checking in and very concerned about the children and their safety. And <laughs> it feels a lot like at the end of Home Alone when the family gets back and they're like, Buzz is like, hey, great job, twerp. You didn't burn down the place, you know. <laughs> and everybody's really surprised that he didn't. And then they do the like, you know, cool high five or whatever. (laughs) Everybody kind of seems a little like it's insulting that they're surprised that everything's like going well with the kids, but people are like figuring out meal trains for us and stuff. And it's like, I leave all the time. And I don't know that anybody cares for Rachel. (laughs) They're just very impressed with her capacities. So that kind of, that kind of community is lovely. Uh, We were talking today about like the giant churches that are in some parts of the country. And my daughter was saying, well, I really like Hope Church because I feel like I know everybody. I was like, yeah, those giant churches are great too. You can feel like you know a group of people that are your group within those big churches. But there's something really nice about a church. And, you know, again, just to be honest, Hope Church is not a small church statistically in the United States. However, it kind of feels that way sometimes. Certainly it feels like a group that you could get to know. Community's nice. I think everybody could agree with that. Community is especially nice with a culture that's just kind of transient. Everybody's kind of not from here. Everybody's kind of figuring out life without like, you know, several generations of rooted sort of movement in the same direction. It's nice to be able to catch some sort of community. But the Bible goes a lot further than just saying, hey, community's fun. The Bible talks about community in a really necessary way. Not just for your functioning, but, but it, that it is crucial to being who you are in Jesus. 
And that's something different. There's, there's like, hey, let's be better about community. Wouldn't that be nice if we did that more? And it sort of sounds like, wouldn't it be nice if you ate more vegetables? But the way that John talks about loving the brotherhood, he doesn't talk about it like, wouldn't it be nice if you had more of this in your world? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if you could attain that next level of, of like health and efficiency? But no, no, no. He, he talks about it in a really crucial way. Look how he says it. In 1 John 2, starting verse 7, he said, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, remember where we've been uh, before 1 John 2, 7 through 11. He's using these concepts of light and darkness consistently, and he's talking about life and light and darkness and and death, though he doesn't talk about death as much. He describes this, this sort of either or. And he describes it in a way that comes back to his testimony as an apostle, because he's not just talking about concepts, he's talking about a person. When he's talking about light and life, he's talking about the eternal life, which is Jesus. So he begins the whole book by talking about how this Jesus that is that light and life is the one that he has seen and touched and known. He's, he's heard from him because he lived with Jesus for a period of years. Now, there's something really unique about Christ. I think a lot of times people like to compare different religions, and they talk about how Christianity and Islam and, and um, you know, Buddhism or Shintoism or whatever, and they, they kind of build their list of religions, and then they, they kind of lump them together. But there's some really unique stuff about Christianity. And one that's especially unique is the fact that Jesus is the only person I can think of. And I don't know everything about every religion. And honestly, I'm quoting from somebody else so you can take their authority. But I don't, he, he's the only person I can think of who built a massive religious following and claimed to be God. Now, if you think about this for a second, it's kind of crazy because there are massive religious followings that have taken place throughout human history. And a lot of the ones that you're familiar with have kind of piggybacked on Christianity, let's be realistic. But the ones that have kind of sprung up, the ones that have kind of taken place kind of on their own or become their own thing over time, things like Buddhism or whatever, they have religious leaders. And if they've taken off in a big way, those religious leaders have always pointed to something else. They might exemplify the code, but they, they point to the code as, as the thing that everybody should be looking for. Now, the Buddha was a very impressive character, and he brought a lot of personal sort of integrity, maybe, and charisma to his movement. But the whole time, he wasn't saying, I'm not the way, here is the way. On the other hand, you do have people that claim to be God. You ever met one of those kind of people before? They're usually like transient type people. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. I tried to help a guy out, and he was telling me about how he was the son. Uh, and I started to argue with him. Never a good idea. Uh, afterward, the other guy I was with, we like dropped the guy off, and the other guy was with us. He's like, 
don't argue with crazy, man. What are you, what are you doing? Like, how, how crazy are you to argue with crazy? And uh, yeah, okay. So, so maybe you've met somebody like that before that says, like, I am that I am. And you go, excuse me? And they're like, Yahweh. <laughs> nice to meet you. You know, like they would claim to be God. Well, historically, when people do that, they may claim it and they may gather a group of sort of disenfranchised people around them. But those people who get to actually see the life of that individual are often not convinced and not convinced in the long term. So with Jesus, you have something really unique. You have somebody who built a massive religious movement that has rocked the history of the world while also claiming to be God. The movement that he established was founded on the testimony of the people that were closest to him who both lived and died proclaiming that he is God. That's pretty intense. The longer you live as a Christian, the longer you may have to kind of ask that question of which one was the harder one to do, to be a disciple and continue living for God or to be a disciple and have to die for God. But these apostles sealed the testimony with their life, decades of ministry, in the case of John especially, and their blood. You got something really unique here, and that's what John is saying about this Jesus. He's saying something that is really specific, and he's saying something unique from the perspective of the apostle. And and he's saying when he's talking about this Jesus, that there is a, a command that does come, and it's a command that does help you to see kind of who you are. It's not a new commandment in the sense that it's been from the beginning. It's one of the first commandments or even the first commandment to love. But it is kind of like a new commandment in the sense that we're now empowered by the Holy Spirit. We now have the full example of Jesus to understand the height of love that we are supposed to share with one another, but to also understand the depth of God's forgiveness as we continue in this process of of learning to love. It's kind of like a new command as we, as we try to follow, we look to the founder and perfecter of our faith, try to love like he did. And, and that is the command. Let's be clear. If you're reading those verses carefully, you, you saw what the command was. He was talking about loving other people, loving your brother. He did the thing that John always does where he says it in the positive and he says it in the negative. He talks about loving your brother and he talks about not hating your brother. And he talks about how either one of those two things is really indicative of whether or not you're in the light or walking in darkness. He says it because that is the essential command of Christianity, to love. We talk about this regularly and it's because it's a big deal. I want you to see it. In Matthew 22, Jesus says to a lawyer who says, what's the greatest law? Jesus replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Think about that for a moment. Christian, non-Christian, somebody who's evaluating. Post-Christian, think about this for a moment. The command of Christianity is love. That doesn't sound like anything else. Like, like if you want to be in the military, they give you a code of conduct that you have to follow, and they give you a lot of orders. I've never been in the military, but from the movies, there's a lot of, of stuff you have to do. Those are the commands you follow to be in the military. That makes sense. This doesn't sound like that. 
I've been in locker rooms. Whenever you're in a locker room, you got the coach that's always trying to get you, you know, to have the big vision, believe, smack the thing, or, you know, the 35 things they tried to instill during halftime because you weren't closing out and nobody's blocking out and yada, 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 and, you know, the rules that he's giving. Okay, that makes sense to me, but this doesn't sound like that either. This doesn't sound like the rules that my kids have to quote when they go into school and they have the rules of being responsible, respectful, and safe. And everybody has to chant that out, whether they understand it or not. That sounds like a kind of rule that makes sense to me. That's not what Jesus said here, though. You go to a boardroom and you have to have these sort of legal realities that guard what you do, you know, if you're caught <laughs> corporate America. But, but you also have like boards of directors and share and stakeholders that are involved in your decision making. There's rules. But this sounds much more like how you get along in like a friendship or even like a marriage or like how you get along as a, as a child of a parent or a parent of a child. It doesn't sound like rules in the same way. It doesn't sound like the commands to like fast every Friday and give 10%. It sounds like something different because it is something different. The essential command of Christianity is love, but if you think more about that, why? Why is love the heartbeat of Christianity? Is because all you need is love? Is it because love is nice? Is it because we want to seem really friendly? Or, or is there something more to it? Well, as you understand a little bit more about the Bible, you understand that God's essential character is what means that we love. We, we're going to reflect him. What that light is showing us about him and the world is Love. In fact, later in 1 John, he says in, in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, God is holy, holy, holy. God is many things. I, I don't want to reduce the one in order to emphasize the other, but what it does say here is that God is love. And he makes a very clear connection between anybody being of God, having love, showing love as God does, because that's what God does. What do you think about the Trinity? You just wish it wasn't there. Gosh, sometimes I do. My goodness. I, I'll buy books. I'm really good at buying books on the Trinity. And then you read the first like section and you go, wait a minute. <laughs> what did I just read? Because a lot of times it'll say all the stuff that we believe, but it doesn't necessarily bring all those things together. By Trinity, we mean that the person of God, who, who God is, that he is one in essence and three in person, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are God, and that there is one God. Did you follow that? If you did, it's because you understood the pieces. It's not because you put them together. Because you can't. There's a mystery there. And that's frustrating, isn't it? It's hard when you're trying to tell people, hey, here's this like comprehensive worldview that you can just follow and trust, but then you keep stepping over into mystery. And for those of us that are kind of big-headed, you know, Western proud people, we keep stumping our head against that idea that, that there's something outside our ability to understand. So why do we have the Trinity? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot about God that he didn't have, hasn't told us yet. I mean, how could he, it's a big book in the Bible, but how could he include all the stuff about him? There's going to be all kinds of stuff, I'm sure, that we'll learn more about as we get to be with him. So why the Trinity? Why was that put in the book? Well, one of the reasons it's so nice is because it means that love predates creation. 
The fact of the Trinity means that God was able to show love to himself, to the other persons in that Trinity, as a one, one God, but as a three. In that way, the sort of following of God's plan way of making babies actually kind of points to that, doesn't it? If you want to follow God's plan, meaning that you, you follow God's written sort of poem, so you're going to enact the poem in the way that he wants you to do it, he's given us to do it, then babies follow marriage, right? Doesn't always happen, no judgment, I'm a sinner, but I'm just telling you, God's plan was for babies to come after marriage, so, so there would be this loving relationship, and the product of that loving relationship would involve, that, that's the only place babies would come from. It would be from the overflow of a previous loving relationship. Do you understand that everything seen and unseen, according to Scripture, was created out of the overflow of God's intense love for himself? And again, you got to implant Trinity there because they say love for yourself and you think pride. Well, no. He's the only one who can love selflessly <laughs> himself. Uh, okay, well, you're in that little cul-de-sac of the Trinity. Just keep going, okay? But what I'm saying is that love can be the essential reality of Christianity. Love can certainly predate creation. That what God's doing is more of a come and see rather than a will you help me. He didn't create because he needed people to show him love. He created because this is so good. <laughs> he, he, he's just sharing it with us. That's, that's what God is saying about himself and the love that he pours out towards us, that the essential nature of it, that you can't have Christianity without it. Ask the Pharisees. You, you can't follow God without it. But look at how quickly John goes from talking about the love of God to talking about the love of other people. It's almost like you don't even think about him talking about the love of God, because as soon as he says it, he starts talking about love of other people. Look at it says in 9, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The first thing God shows you when he shows you himself is, is himself. Like the first thing you see when you turn on light is, is, is light. Now, it seems like the first thing he shows you other than himself, though, the first thing you sort of see by that light is other people. So let's just take a moment and ask ourselves, is that what your life looks like? Before we go any further, we talk about assurance, we talk about peace, we talk about unshakable confidence. Is that what your life looks like? Is it an early in the morning till late at night kind of an emphasis for you? something to think about. See what God is doing, and this is going to, we're going to take a second in Ephesians, which is a different book in the New Testament written by a different writer named Paul. But he talks about the whole of God's plan, and golly, poor Paul, poor readers of Paul, his sentences are so long. I got to give you three verses instead of just one or four. But it says, in him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness 
of time. Now, you're going to have to go home and do good English and like, good English isn't a good way to say that. Do English well and diagram this sentence out. Work on it. What's the main verb? What's the main noun? How how is all these subjugate, subjugate clauses, how do they, how do they connect? How do they support? How do they describe? But if you do that, what he's saying is in Christ, God revealed the mystery of his will, this plan that he had for the right time, for the fullness of time. And what was that plan? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That, that's that's kind of what love is, right? So for just a second, let's think about it. If you want to do kingdom work, are you ever kind of tempted to think that that means you got to do something that's like charitable? Like kingdom work only takes place in 501c3s and is tax deductible. Like kingdom work can only take place, you know, after seminary and, and when you're on some foreign mission field. What this verse says is that God is uniting all things to himself. So when you wake up as an accountant, you are building a world where things start to make a little bit more sense financially. And as you do that, you're interacting with other humans that you can invite through love invite into this union with life itself to to rectify that initial break that took place between us and the Holy One when we fell. Man, there's so much to say about how we work and how we think about our calling, whether it's, you know, something within the church or outside the church, even though those are are false barriers. But John continues. He he goes a little bit further. He, He doesn't just say that we should love. He also starts to illustrate not just the fact of our love for one another, because he's a good example. He, he shows us how to show love to one another. It's in every sentence of this book. But he also shows us the means, and he does it through a little poem he puts together. So let's look at verses 12 through 14. If you ever just read First John, then this little poem just kind of jumps out at you. Like John's writing in this very sort of, you know, um, image-laden, kind of heavy, almost poetic style. But even within that style, he jumps out for a moment and does this very, like, formulaic kind of blessing. And he says, I am writing to you. In our first sermon on this series, we talked about how the, the purpose of this book is kind of written on several different places about how we won't sin anymore, about how we, joy will be complete, about how we'll have assurance. But here he's saying, I'm, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, Fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he starts the same sort of cycle over again and says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, the, the more that you read kind of Hebrew writing, the more that you read the Psalms, the more that you read the Old Testament, the more that you read the New Testament and see that even though it's written in Greek, the reflection in the same sort of style is taking place. And especially with John, who writes Revelation, which seems bananas until you read uh, Ezekiel and you read Isaiah and you start to see, whoa, man, all this stuff. There's so much that was already in the major minor prophets that he's just kind of taking and, and restating. John would have been really soaked in this stuff. And you see how he's saying something similar, but not exactly the same. I write to you children in in verse 12 because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I write to you children in verse um, 13 because you know the Father. 
Can you be forgiven without coming to know the Father? Would you ever want to? But isn't it interesting that there's maybe a break in those concepts for us? Same, slightly different. He says about fathers in verse 14, the second cycle. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, that's actually the same as what he says in verse 13, right? Because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he says, I write to you young men because you're strong. Because the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So again, he's kind of putting together. What does it mean to overcome the evil one? Well, to, to be strong in the Lord, to have the word of God abide in you, to have that light and that life filling you up and showing you what the world is actually like, to saying no to the things that God hates and saying yes to the things that are very difficult maybe, but what God has given. So, so why does John talk about age groups? Why does John use a poem and why the repetition? What is he saying here? And how in the world does it connect to what we were just talking about, about how we love one another? Well, I think what John is doing, among other things that I don't understand, I'm sure, is giving an example of his love for us. Meaning, he's given the example of what it is to be one who knows God, and because you know the love of God, love other people. John's modeling that for us, and he can't help not doing it because that's what he is. He, he knows God, and it's, it's just impossible to know God and not love other people. So knowing God, when he writes, he's going to express love towards other people. And you see that throughout the whole thing. He's talking about family terms here. Fathers, young men, children. These are, these are within a family kind of names. Throughout the book, he's talking about my little children. Technon, I, I write to you, my little children. Now, he's an apostle. He can say little children to ancient people if he wants to. But I, I think he's also just saying like, oh, oh, people I love. Not you toe-headed, you know, acolytes, you, you new people, you, you idiotic kind of elementary age weirdos. He, he, no, he, he says like my little, my little children. He often talks about us as beloved. A God boy, like my, my little loved ones. Oh, those that I love. If those phrases are commonplace now, it's just because John was using them here. If they are diminutive, remember that he's an apostle. He can say that if he wants to. But he also starts using these terms about older men, fathers, younger men, and then the, the children or the young guest. And within the church, we don't look down on people who are young, like Timothy, Paul's companion. We don't look down on him because he's young. He still gets to lead and write scripture. And we don't necessarily assume, on the other hand, that gray hairs mean that somebody's attained wisdom. They may just have the tenacity not to be killed by their foolishness yet. And that's impressive in a way, but it's not necessarily wisdom. And yet, what, what he's doing is he's, he is showing respect. He is encouraging this idea of, of growth in the Lord and having confidence in the Holy Spirit's work over time with people. But, but get into the heart of what he's saying. Not just the way he says it, but the heart of what he's saying. Because he encourages both what is true, what they need to believe, and what they need to do at the same time. He spends all this time already in the book talking about how we need to abide in the light and put away the darkness, how we need to walk in fellowship with the light and the life and not in fellowship with the darkness, and how if anybody says they are without sin, they're a liar. So, so this like glowing sort of assessment of the people that were in the church, it doesn't mean they were really 
sinless. And it certainly doesn't mean they've overcome the enemy. I mean, my gosh, how do you ever think you've done that? Well, that's because this is how the gospel works. See, the gospel is not, the, the good news, the central message of Christianity is not that if you do these things, you'll get better at them, and eventually you'll be at a place where you can be done. Because in fact, Christianity has such a negative view of who we are and our capacities that if you live like 150 years and you do it with an incredible, saintly, discipled walk, you're still not going to get that far in sanctification. We're still, we're starting at such a bad spot. We're still not going to get that far. And yet, at the same time, while you and I have done petty effort and gotten very far, uh, not very far, we've gotten almost nowhere in our discipleship or in our sanctification and learning to be like Christ, even though we haven't done much of that at all in the gospel, it is also true that you've already won. Both of those things are true at the same time, and that's why he can talk in sort of a like completed present when he's talking about fathers that have done this or young men that have overcome the evil one. How have they overcome the devil? Well, in Christ. Every day when they say no to selfishness and try to say yes to love, but, but also in a finished way because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Listen, that's how the gospel works. The primary lesson of this uh, sort of poem is that verse 12 where he says, I'm writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. See, John learned the primary lesson that Jesus came to teach. Following Jesus around for three years, he didn't learn a lot about, I'm sure he did, really, but, but the main lesson he was there to learn wasn't about productivity and how much you can get done in three years. It wasn't about anxiety reduction. He didn't learn preaching techniques or missional strategy, even though the, he did learn a lot from those things, about those things from Christ. See, what John learned and what he continues to emphasize in all of his writing throughout the New Testament is what all the apostles came to learn, which was the true meaning of Jesus' life and ministry, which is not follow me and you'll somehow live, but believe in me and I'll give you life. Yeah, if you do things his way, things are going to get better and better and better. But, but you can't earn your way before a holy God. John understood the apostle what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So when John is teaching us about Jesus, he's teaching us about the presence of a king. Like in the West, we don't have this concept of a king, do we? Like if, you know, if Taylor Swift was here... Fresh off the era, eras tour? So somebody was telling me, oh, they're in there this era. They were making a Taylor Swift joke as though I was like real familiar with her tour schedule or whatever. But if Taylor Swift walked through, you might be a little bit starstruck. I don't know that you would be like scared, but you might be a little scar starstruck. But we don't have the concept of a king. And so when we talk about coming to know Christ, most people are evaluating whether or not they want to be Christians about whether or not like that sounds better than their life. I think for people that have a real understanding of sovereignty or a real understanding of what it is that something could be above them, when they hear about Christianity, they might actually ask a different question, which is, how could I be allowed to know a king like that? I think it's why Islam is so offended by Christianity. Why would we think that we could come to know God in that way? Boy, I, 
I, I think if you'll let that sink in a little bit, you'll realize that when God says, you can come and be with me, it's like he says, you can come and live on the surface of the sun. Well, I'm sure it's nice, but I don't belong there. Like, I can't go there. I'm not allowed. The gospel is that the king has made a way for you to be allowed. The gospel is that he loves you so much that he's not just going to clean you up. He's going to bring you to himself, that he's not just interested in your code of conduct or your righteousness, but he's also interested in you because he loves you. That's the gospel. And you'll never love people until you understand it. But if you understand it, you will always love people. Now, how do we do that? I'm already out of time. So let's just say real quick, man, you need to embrace your need for other people. Do you know that you need other people? Do you feel like other people making appointments with you is an imposition or a salvation? When somebody wants to have coffee with you, does that feel like, oh, geez, let me see if I can make time for this person? Or Is it a joy that you get to receive grace from this other person that God has given to you? Oh, man, you need to embrace your need for other people. It's all in the gospel. The idea that you're a sinner, you you need other people to show you who this Jesus is. You wouldn't have known him if somebody hadn't preached. You need to embrace your new status in the family with everything that entails. You ever been a part of a family? There's a lot to it. Oh my gosh, gun to my head yesterday. We were talking about what day we were born on, like day of the week. And I knew everybody's birthday at the table. And then I got nervous that I wasn't going to remember my mother's birthday. And it was like, dad said, well, why don't you ask Siri about mom's birthday? And it was like, like, ah, this is deadly right now. Like, (laughs) it was like a roulette pistol. Like they slid the chamber and it was spinning around. And it was like, all right, can I say the right July? You know, like, can I say the right thing. There's, there's obligation that comes with family. But there's obligation that comes because you're actually part of a family and God has brought you into a family. You need to embrace your need. You need to embrace your new status in the family, but you also need to reorient your schedule for love inside and outside the church. By God's grace, we got a couple of invitations that have backed up on us from our neighborhood people where we could have them over and get to know them more and share the gospel. And it's backing up. Uh-oh, something's got to change. My kids may not be able to do as many sports, and this is going to be crazy because they would go pro in all of those sports, I'm sure. But maybe there's things that are going to have to get reoriented. And then you need to pray together. Well, we can do a community group tonight. We, we have ours this afternoon. Community group this week, if you jump into one of those. Well, you're going to spend a lot of time praying for each other. You don't really need a lot of content. I apologize to Mitchell Cox last week because I gave him like terrible content. I just trusted the author and I didn't read the book. And then I was like, oh man, this is rough. And he was like, dude, it's a community group. Like, oh, you're right. <laughs> so by the time we pray for each other and like care for each other well, we got like two questions we can ask. <laughs> so community group's not content group. Community group is prayer. Community group is community. You got to pray to each other. Set down your relationship, remembering where it comes from. And then you got to put down roots. Listen, there's a lot of good reasons to move, and, and God's going to do whatever he's going to do with you. And obviously, if you choose to, to move house or move state, you don't usually ask your pastor what he thinks about it. But 
if you're going to have real community, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. Doesn't mean you shouldn't move. People in the New Testament were itinerant. They're everywhere. But if you're going to have the kind of real community that we're talking about here, it's going to take time. So if God calls you to move, you got to move. But, but if not, then, then add in that to your equation. Wouldn't it be great to be one place long enough to really have those kind of roots? As you're thinking about all of these things, I mean, there's a ton to try and apply there. Let me just ask you to go back a little bit and say, do I know the love of the Lord? It's possible to receive that love, receive that salvation, and still feel kind of cold to your brothers and sisters. Okay, let's work on it. But if there's just nothing there, can you, can you ask yourself, really, do you know him? Let's bow our heads in prayer right now. And I just want to ask for God's grace to assess, do you really know the Lord? Father, I pray that you would give us grace to apply John's tests here. We don't become yours because we love other people. But if we love you, if we are yours, Father, we will love other people. And it may be small, but it will be growing. It may be very, very, almost imperceptible, but it will be present. I pray, Father, that you give us grace to think that way. And I pray that in your grace, Lord, you would lead us to yourself. We love you, sir. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.